This is Bob Morris in Desert Horticulture. Today I'd like to talk to you about what it takes to grow citrus in the desert. Whether you think it's too cold or too hot, whatever the reasons might be, citrus can grow here. But we've got to know which ones and how. All this and more on today's Desert Horticulture. Citrus, or growing citrus in the desert, can be somewhat of a challenge. And it has to do with not just the type of citrus that we purchase and we want to grow here, but um, soil improvement, if it needs it, irrigation, again, if it needs it, and usually it does, if it's growing in the desert anyway, which fertilizer to use, and which ones are not for use, and probably one of the most common questions I get asked is what causes the yellowing in citrus? All these I'll try to answer in my topics today on growing citrus in the desert. But first of all, in selecting the citrus itself, recognize that there are lots of different types of citrus, all the way from lemons to limes, oranges, all the crosses in between. And in the tropical climates, we have pomelo, which is a close relative we could picture in size anyway, to grapefruit. And we have all of these citrus to pick from. Well, which ones should we be choosing if we're in a desert climate? Because obviously, most of these, all of these, in fact, all of these citrus that I mentioned are either tropical or subtropical in nature. We, when we're growing in the desert, when we're growing plants in the desert, we come from a variety of places. But deserts are always characteristic of low rainfall, less than 10 inches or 4 centimeters a year. And this leads to soils that are typically alkaline in nature, and have low organic content. Now, low organic content doesn't mean no organic content. It just means that it's lower than other soils. We can generally look at a soil and tell its organic content. Tropical soils sometimes are a little harder to to do that with, but if we're in the temperate climates, the uh, the soil color will be an indicator of the organic content. And typically, we're looking for soils that have a slight brown color at a minimum, and a maximum can be with real high organic content. Uh, They can have a real dark uh, brown color, or almost black in nature. That's not true of a lot of the (laughs) tropical soils. Not a lot, but some of the tropical soils that are black in nature and still low in organic content, but that's a whole different category. Those are a different class of soils. We're talking mostly of the temperate climate soils, the soils that we find in places like North America and Central America and South America and Australia and New Zealand and South Africa. We're not talking about Southeast Asian soils, typically, that are 15 or so degrees on either side of the equator. We're talking about soils that are typically found in something greater than 15 degrees north or south latitude of the equator. 
So when we're talking about citrus, we're talking about lots of different kinds of citrus, and they can range in size, anywhere from fairly small in size to fairly large in size. And uh, when we're, just to get one of the questions that I get a lot of comments about, and that's which citrus are, are good for containers. And typically what we're looking for when we're looking for containers, plants, trees that grow that can grow in containers are small to begin with. So a lot of times the lime trees, the lemon, some of the lemon trees are a little bit smaller in size. The kumquats, for instance, typically typically don't get very large. And there's a lot of different variations of those in size. But when we start talking about some of the larger lemon trees, and those, and I should include those that are on rootstocks that are called semi-dwarfing or dwarfing rootstocks that don't allow the tree to get larger uh, in size. Some of these rootstocks, you have to be careful when you start selecting rootstocks, but some of these rootstocks are will can will will grab the citrus tree above it and make it smaller in size and stature and, and these trees again would be suitable for containers but generally speaking what we're looking for are is a tree size that's less than i would say about 12 or 15 feet tall would be because when we're getting into 12 and 15 foot tall trees, even though the containers might be, they might be suitable for container growth, we're still probably going to have, when they hit 12 and 15 feet tall, we're still going to have to prune them back. We're still going to have to cut them back occasionally just to keep them in size with the containers. But growing citrus in containers is a whole nother topic. There's a lot of information about what you can do and growing plants in containers, fruit trees in containers. But generally speaking, we're looking for those that can be smaller in size when we're looking at container fruit trees. <clears throat> the first category that I want to talk about when we're talking about citrus for the desert is what are our freeze temperatures that we're looking at? What kind of freezing temperatures? Because freezing temperatures on citrus can have a double effect. If the citrus is producing flowers in our winter time, too early in our winter time, they can be lost by freezing temperatures. The flowers and fruit production can be lost by freezing temperatures. If we select a citrus tree that will that is tender to the freezing temperatures that we normally get during the winter time, then this can pose a second problem for us in selecting citrus. And that is, sometimes we're just going to pick citrus that are too tender for the area that we have. In an earlier podcast, I talked about microclimates and the effects that microclimates can have on on very, very localized weather conditions. So and these are conditions, weather conditions that are surrounding your home. So when we're looking at the landscape weather conditions, obviously then we're going to pick, if we have a temperature problem, if let's say we can expect temperatures to be freezing, well below freezing, maybe 20 degrees Fahrenheit, 
Then selecting a warm spot without wind in our home landscape is going to be extremely important. So we're going to focus on if if temperatures are going to be freezing, we're going to focus on those areas in the microclimate, in our landscape microclimate, that are warm. So when you walk outside, we're looking for temperatures that are going to be warmer. But secondly on that as well is we're going to protect it from wind. So you can see already, when we're talking about desert climates and we're, we're selecting plants, fruit trees that can grow in desert climates, we've got to be concerned about a couple of things. First of all, is that, is that suitable for our climate? Is it, is it a fruit tree that's going to be, is coming from uh, a desert environment? Much like pistachios. Pistachios are closer to a desert environment when we select them than, and pomegranates, for instance, than, for instance, peach trees or plum trees or even citrus. Sits, most of our citrus will either come out of South America in the subtropical areas and tropical areas of South America or from Southeast Asia and those tropical and subtropical areas. Now, we're taking those, those trees, those subtropical trees, and we're trying to grow them in a desert environment. Well, what's different about a desert environment? The desert environment, usually, that we're going to be putting them in, into is going to be higher in light concentration, sunlight. Sunlight intensity is going to be a problem. Secondly, is going to be temperature extremes. Now, most of our citrus can handle the temperature extremes of a desert. That's not an issue. It's the cold temperatures that are more of an issue than the extreme high temperatures that you might find around the Sonoran Desert areas, low elevation areas of the Sonoran Desert, for instance. So when we're picking, when we're picking citrus trees, the minor temperature, the low temperature that we're looking for must be suitable to that environment. Temperature extremes, freezing temperatures during our wintertime are going to be extremely important for citrus and where we're going to place them in the landscape is going to be very important for, for citrus selection. So when we're going to a nursery, we're going to have lots of different types of citrus to pick from. Typically, the lower citrus varieties, the lower temperature, the varieties of citrus that are, will handle the lower temperatures, the freezing temperatures of winter, will be classified as, first of all, kumquats, uh, secondly, are the Myers lemon, not the true lemons, such as the Ponderosa, such as the Lisbon, such as those, the Bonanza types that we can find in the nursery. But I'm talking about the Myers lemon, the so-called Myers lemon, the Myers lemon. And we're looking for the improved Myers lemon, of course. The improved Myers lemon, those can handle typically temperatures of about 25 degrees Fahrenheit. So and then we're getting into the grapefruit classification as well. The grapefruits typically can handle lower temperatures. But when we start to get into temperatures where they where citrus can't handle, can't tolerate those freezing temperatures for much of a length of time at all, we're talking about limes and true lemons and those kinds of of citrus trees that can't handle the extreme low temperatures 
that we can find in some parts of the desert. Remember, when we're when we're planting a citrus, we're looking at two things. We're looking at managing the temperature, the freezing temperature during the winter time, which also means you're managing the temperatures in the summertime as well, but you're finding a warm spot in that location. And remember what I told you, and that is that the warm spots in a in a microenvironment, in a landscape microclimate that we're we're considering, is also going to take into consideration the 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 wind as well. So the two factors that we're looking at are the low temperatures, the minimum temperatures during the winter time, and also wind. And remember that wind can be a big factor in removing warm air in warmth around these citrus trees that can accumulate when we put them in these microclimates. So just finding a, just finding a microclimate, a warm microclimate in our landscape might not be enough for citrus. We might have to also control the wind that goes through that area. So I think two things are going to be important for you when we're measuring, when we're measuring the microclimate around a home. And that is, first of all, how low of a temperature does that get? That's easy. You can just put a thermometer out there, a recording thermometer that measures the minimum temperature and the maximum temperature and just record it. But I'm telling you that's not enough. I'm also telling you that you've got to be aware of the wind patterns that are around your home as well because wind has a big influence on uh, the, the minimum temperature, the freezing temperature, the winter temperatures that citrus can withstand. And also that wind can play havoc on uh, fruit production as well. So once we determine which, which fruit we can plant back there, which fruit we can focus on, then we can start looking at other factors that might be important for citrus production in the desert. And that would be soil improvement. So let's say, for instance, we've we've went ahead, we found out what our climate requirements are for that particular area. We found out our microclimate where we want to place a citrus tree, but now we're also looking at improving that soil. And I'm here to tell you that all composts are good soil amendments. Some are better composts than others. Some composts will contain lots of fertilizer. Those that are heavy in manures, for instance. And those, some composts are going to be lighter in nutrient content. And we might have to add a fertilizer. They're all going to improve the soil. Remember, compost will, compost and soil amendments do two things to that soil. They affect the porosity of that soil or how fluffy it can get and how well it drains. All of those things that are important to the physical structure of that soil. But it also can add or subtract to the nutrient content of that soil. How much fertilizer is applied? What kinds of fertilizers are applied? So typically when I'm looking for compost, I like to find compost that come from a diversity of different things, from a diversity of different products, of different vegetables, of different trees, of different... So when I'm looking for 
For compost, I like to have it come from as many places as possible that are still are still safe for us to use chemically. So I'm looking at two things. I'm looking at building the structure of that soil by adding a compost, a certain amount of compost to that soil. But I'm also add, looking at the possibility of adding nutrients to that soil. So when I'm picking a, a compost, and those of you that know me know that I consult for uh, Virgo in North Las Vegas, and which is a compost, it's just soil, a soil mixing facility. It's not a composting facility. The compost, the two composts that come out of there, one of them is very rich, and it comes from uh, two sources. It comes from animal manures, but it also comes from municipal solid waste, and that's the 166 compost from Virago. But once that's extremely high, extremely rich. I, I get those soil test reports when I want them uh, emailed to me, and I look at the nutrient content. And when I'm looking at the nutrient content of a compost, some composts, like I said, are very low in nutrient content, and some are very high. You won't find it added as a fertilizer, although they will tend to add nutrients to that soil, depending upon which type of compost you're using, <clears throat> garbage in, garbage out kind of a thing when it comes to compost. But as these composts start to disintegrate, as they break down, as we force them to break down, as we go through that composting process, we start to release the nutrients to that soil. And that's why I said garbage in, garbage out. If you're putting a lot of bad stuff into the compost to begin with, and you're just using it as a trash bin, well, you're going to probably get trash out of it. You're probably not going to get good quality compost out of it. But if you're careful on what you, you put into it, if, if, if you're careful on what nutrients, what is made to, is used to make the compost, then we can be usually safer in the uh, use of that compost for plants. And, and if those plants produce food, then gathering food from that compost as well. Because plants do take up nutrients from the soil, different amounts and different uh, yields, uh, different amounts from that soil. And depending upon the nutrient content, we're learning more. Science is revealing more and more of, the, of what it means when we're, when we're mixing compost into a soil. And that's why I say garbage in, garbage out. I'm not denigrating municipal solid waste compost at all. If we're careful about which municipal solid waste go into the composting facility, then garbage in is good and the garbage out is good. Both of, both of those will be good. But if we're not careful, if we go ahead and put anything we want into that, into that composting process, then we'll get garbage out because garbage went in. So when we're talking about compost, the two things that I'm mostly concerned about is the, the structuring of that soil, is how the physical nature of that soil will change, and also the nutrient content, how much, how much of the plant nutrients are put back into the soil. And like I told you, some composts are rich in plant nutrients and others are not as rich. They still can add something to the soil, but they won't add as much of it. 
So, like I said, that 166 compost is made from municipal solid waste that is separated out so that the bad stuff is taken out of it and the good stuff is the only stuff that's used in the municipal solid waste for composting. And that does contain a certain amount of human waste as well, biosolids as they're called, but that biosolids is composted. It's not raw biosolids. So the reports that I get back in of the fertilizers, the compost made from these municipal solid waste components, I check it. They always will conform to the EPA standards and is Environmental Protection Agency standards of low to no new, of no uh, pathogens, human pathogens, animal pathogens, as well as uh, the heavy metal content, the content that is uh, released to the public. They'll always be within acceptable limits by the Environmental Protection Agency. It's your choice on whether you want to use that particular type of compost or not. Because in the past, probably 15 years ago, we weren't permitted to use it on on plants and on plants that we used for food. Now we're permitted to, as the EPA has has separated, has, has allowed us to use it, if provided the compost is of a high enough quality. So anyway, I'll talk more about that later in another podcast episode on compost. But soil improvement is important. The amount of compost that you use, typically when we're looking at fruit trees, uh, not as much compost is needed as we need for vegetable production, for instance, as annual plants. But whenever we're talking about fruit trees, we need a minimum of about 2% organic matter. That doesn't mean anything to you. You can't you can't look at a soil and determine the percentage of organic content in that soil. So I've racked my brain to try to think of some way that you can you can visually you can visually deduce what the organic content. And that's really based upon color. So when the color of that soil hits a medium chocolate brown color, like a milk chocolate color, it's it's suitable for use around fruit trees and landscape trees and for planting in the soil. So when we're planting the citrus, for instance, we're digging a hole. It doesn't have to be deep, just deep enough for the roots so that they can spread themselves out. But we want to focus on a, on a soil that has improvements as wide as possible around that area. So when we're preparing a soil for citrus, for any fruit tree, citrus being one of those, uh, then we want to dig the holes wide, much wider, as wide as possible. So I like to say three times the width of whatever the planting container is that you're using. Using a five-gallon nursery container, then it's going to be three times that five-gallon diameter of that. That's where you're going to apply the compost. That's where you're going to apply nutrients to the soil. That's where you're going to dig it in and improve that soil. And what I'm telling you is the color of that soil is your key indicator of whether you've got the nutrient, whether you've got enough organics in that soil or not. Generally 2%. And that usually hits a light brown color. So I'm saying a medium brown color is probably going to be far enough you don't need to get it a dark chocolate cocoa color. 
that's suitable for vegetable, many of our vegetables, especially rooting vegetables, but not so important for uh, for fruit trees, a lighter amount. So I like to see about uh, 25% of the volume. And we're talking about a volume to volume ratio. We're talking 25%. So that means one scoop of compost volume for three scoops of volume of soil, desert soil, desert amended soil, desert soil that is very light brown in color. If the soil is a darker brown in color, you may not need anything added to that soil. And we see those in desert soils where there has been irrigation applied. We see this in desert soils where there are farmlands, where crops have been grown and water has been applied because that water has been used by plants so that we they produce the, the, the root growth and everything that's needed to improve that soil. The soil microorganisms are improved. Everything is improved. But when we're talking about raw desert soil, soil that has been never been planted, it's still a desert soil, very low rainfall, and usually that soil is very hard. It resembles caliche. It's not caliche, but it resembles it because it's hard to dig. It's hard to dig that soil. And so what I like to say with vegetables, if you can dig, and I'm talking about vegetable production and raised beds, okay, the soil, the organic content is going to be much higher, again, than the soil um, amendments used around fruit trees. Fruit trees can be much lower in organic content, but vegetables have to be higher, generally around 8 to 10% organic content, which means nothing to you. But it does mean this. It means a darker color. And typically those kinds of soils that have 8 to 10% organic content, you can stick a a hand trowel in very easily. You can just push it into a dry soil or you can dig it with your hands without much trouble when we're hitting 8 to 10%. You can't do that with a 2% soil that's suitable for 2% organic matter, organic content of soil that's suitable for planting fruit trees in. That's got to be amended. If you can't dig it with a shovel, if your shovel bounces off of that soil or you can't stick a hand trowel in it, and you think it looks like cement, well, it probably just needs organic content. And especially if it's a light, very light brown or tan color. That, remember, color is related to the organic content of that soil. So what we're looking at, about 2% organic content in soils suitable for landscape trees and fruit trees and citrus, all of those kinds of things, but we're looking for 8 to 10% organic content, about four times as high, four to five times as high in organic content, and that means a darker brown color in that soil. Okay? So that's what we're looking for when we're talking about soil amendments. And remember, I told you that different composts are richer in nutrients than other composts. The composts that are made from manures, whether it's chicken or or steer manure or whatever it might be made, those composts or, or, or human, those composts are going to be very rich, are going to be rich sources of nutrients, plant nutrients. And again, if we add about 25%, one scoop for every three scoops of soil, and we mix that kind of compost that's rich, that came from animal manures, 
human manure, whatever it might be, if that has been composted properly, and we're using that particular compost in a soil, my guess is you won't need to fertilize fruit trees, including citrus, for about two years after you amend that soil, mix that compost into that soil. If you use another type of compost that's lower in nutrient content, if you use a compost that doesn't have the fertilizer value that animal manure composts have, human manure composts have, the biosolids that I was talking about, as long as it's composted, if that isn't there, the nutrient content is going to be much, much lower. When you're using these types of fertilizers, the fertilizers, excuse me, the, the composts that are, are added to the soil, when you're using a low nutrient content compost, then you may have to add fertilizer, and in particular a starter fertilizer. You're not going, starter fertilizer means the middle number, the phosphorus content is higher, such as a 1620 which is a standard uh, pre-plant fertilizer used to, in, to, to enrich the soil so that you have good root growth at the very beginning when a plant is young. The 16-20-0 composts like that, the pre-plant fertilizers, are going to be important for you to be applying to uh, a soil, to a soil if the nutrient content is very low to begin with from those composts, okay? So we have composts that are rich, nutrient, full of nutrient content, and we have other composts that are not as rich, but they still both improve the soil. Either one of those, just be cognizant of where that compost comes from. Did it come from animal manures, human manure waste? Then it's probably going to be very, very high in nutrient content. If it, you won't find it on the bag because it's not a a fertilizer, but it will be higher in nutrient content than other types of compost. So soil improvement. So typically when I'm planting a tree, I'm doing a couple things. I'm, I'm improving that soil by adding compost. If I'm using a compost that is rich in nutrients to begin with, I don't need anything else in that soil. Just one to four ratio, one to three, four ratio is plenty in that soil. However, if I'm using a compost that's lower in nutrient content, I may have to add a starter fertilizer. Starter fertilizers are not necessary in composts that are made with animal waste and human waste compost, type compost. They may be necessary if they're not made with animal manures. So, okay. So, compost incorporation of that soil might be very important to you. And I told you how to discriminate between a soil that is higher, remember color, and diggability, how you can dig with a hand trowel or not. Both of them will be indicators for you of the nutrient content, uh, excuse me, of the porosity, how well that soil is going to perform for you when you plant plants that are not desert plants. Planting of desert plants is entirely different, and that's I, should, I shouldn't have said what I said because it infers something that you don't need to soil improvement, which is not true when you're planting desert plants. They still perform better with some soil improvement, just not as much soil improvement as others. But that's another topic for another time. So when these trees like citrus are planted, 
I make sure that everything goes into that hole very, very wet. So the reason I do that is really to get rid of air pockets. Because when we start adding, when we add the plant to the hole, the planting hole, and we start backfilling or adding other amended soil to that, it's naturally, if we put it in dry, it's naturally going to build bridges. It's going to create air pockets. So by adding water at the same time we're planting gets helps to get rid of these air pockets. And you'll see it when you're adding water to that soil, to that backfill around the trees and shrubs. You're going to see air bubbles coming to the surface. And that's your sign. I'm talking about really making it mucky, I mean muddy in there, so that you see air bubbles coming to the surface. Air bubbles mean what? means that there is going to be, it's moist. It's very, very moist when you see these air bubbles. The other thing that I wanted to tell you about, talk to you about, is the importance of staking. And if you're not staking your plants after you're planting them, you are uh, being very Las Vegan because you're relying on Mother Nature to make that decision about whether it was important or not. Because staking plants is really a factor of insurance. It's your insurance. What you're betting on when you stake a plant is you're betting that winds are going to come along and disrupt that plant and push it out and push it over and, and the roots aren't going to get established in that soil as easily. And you might be true. You, it, that might occur to you. That might happen. That might occur to that plant. Then again, it might not. So if you're planting in that hole, you want to make sure that you're putting in a stake and keeping the the roots from moving. And that's what you're doing when you're staking a plant. You don't care about the top so much. You care about where those roots are in the soil. And you want to make sure that those roots can go easily into the surrounded amended soil as quickly as possible, as thoroughly as possible. And the way to do that is to stake the tree so that the roots don't move. You don't care about the top. The top can move. That's not important. What's important is the roots don't move. That's why you're staking a plant. And you're saying, okay, I'll take a chance. These, uh, There's not going to be any wind. It's going to be all calm. And as this plant gets bigger and bigger... Yeah, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. The importance of staking is the insurance, the probability that you're going to be wrong, that wind is going to come along as they get bigger, and it's going to move the top of that plant, and that's going to move the roots in the soil. And instead of getting surrounded, instead of getting, instead of filling into that amended soil that's surrounding it, and possibly getting ripped off or distorted in some way, or even dislodged, what you're saying is, nah, I don't need that protection. I'll go ahead and I won't stake it. That's the importance of staking. Of course, it makes sense the larger the plants are, but I'm talking smaller trees and shrubs as well. If you've got something going in, you know, ones, one gallon, not a problem. You can put them in and they won't go in. But fives, I don't know. I would just as soon stake it. And it doesn't mean that you have to buy, go out and buy stakes. I, I, I will use steel rebar. I'll go ahead and pound. If 
the plant doesn't have its own stake, I'll go ahead and take a piece of steel, 3 inch steel rebar, pound it right next to that plant, right into the ground, and when I'm done in, remember I told you not to dig the hole too deep? Well, there's a reason for that, not digging the hole too deep. The reason is because you loosen that soil beneath it. And that's the soil when you pound the stake in, that's the soil that you're really wanting to pound into. You don't want that soil to move. You don't want it loose so that it can collapse. You want it solid. So when you're pounding that stake in, whether it's rebar or whether you're cutting loose the stake that came with it in the container, it does. Some of them come in with a half-inch piece of stick that's some green nursery tape or tape or tape to it. I like. I cut it loose. I'll go ahead and take a hammer and just pound in, continue to pound right through, right through that container right through that root ball into the solid soil beneath it and then I retape it again with that green nursery tape. So when you go to the nursery and you buy your plants, not just compost and soil amendments that you'll need, you'll need that green nursery tape. I'd recommend having some on hand because it's stretchable. It when the wind comes along and it moves or as it gets larger as it moves, it's going to stretch. And that's what you want. You want some form of tape or something to hold that in place while the plant gets larger for one season only, one year, and then it's removed, and while those roots get established. So those roots are going to get established in the surrounding soil. You've amended the soil. It's nutrient-rich. You've either added a pre-plant fertilizer or you've purchased a real rich fertilizer. You don't need any pre-plant fertilizer. You've watered it in. You've gone ahead, and if it came with a stake, you've cut that stake free from the nursery tape that was in it, and then you've taken a hammer and pounded it, or a rock, and just pounded it into that soil until it really gives no more. And then you've retied it again. You've retied it again. Why? To keep those roots from moving. That's really what you're focused on, keeping the roots from moving. You don't care about the top. It's the roots that you're interested in. So don't dig your holes deep. Leave them. Leave, leave the soil beneath the plant solid so you can pound into it and just make sure that when you plant it you plant with lots of water in the desert very very important you want to see those air bubbles okay you want to see those air bubbles as you're planting so make sure that the soil that goes into that planting hole has been amended make sure that you can you can pound through into the bottom soil beneath it and to keep those roots from moving around remember if you're using a fertilizer, excuse me, a compost that is not rich in nutrients, you're going to have to add a, a starter fertilizer to it, like a 16-20-0. If you're using a rich compost to begin with, you don't need it. Because oftentimes, you have to just trust me that there. oftentimes when you use animal manures, whether it's human manure or cow manure or whatever the manure is, it's, it's usually pretty high in phosphorus. And that's what you're looking for. It's that middle number. Remember I told you 16, 20, 0? Well, you, you've you got a, a 16, 20, 0 built into that compost when you go ahead and amend that soil. So you're going to be high in phosphorus. So a soil improvement. First is you're selecting something based on freezing temperatures. You're finding a warm microclimate that you can plant it in. You're controlling the wind because of that microclimate. Now, last, last thing is irrigation. Now, you're good. When you're planting in the spring, you're planting in the fall, and temperatures are good to begin with, You just watering at one time 
watering it with a hose one time, making sure everything is wet, is good for about one week of irrigation. One week, and that's all you've got. So you've got a week before you have to put the irrigation, before you have to... And I would recommend either using drip emitters or drip tubing. If you use drip tubing, then it's a circle around the tree that you're constructing. If you're using drip emitters, then you're using two on a five-gallon nursery container and four if they're 15-gallon. And they're located about within 12 inches of the the trunk in different quadrants around that tree. And remember, you'll start to turn your irrigation on as soon as you've as you're as it's put in, as soon as you're done planting. Just make sure the soil is wet in the very beginning when you're planting and for the first couple of days after planting. After that, turn it over to your irrigation system, whether it's drip or whatever you're using on it. Fertilizer application. I know I'm glancing over the irrigation, but irrigation, the the amount of irrigation water you apply is going to be very important. There's two decisions you have to make when you're irrigating. When to make that application of water and how much. Those are the two most critical factors. You can overwater by watering it too often. You can overwater it by giving it too much water in a single application. If you're going to make a mistake and overwater, you're much safer by over-irrigating it by giving it too much water each time rather than watering it every day when it's getting established. Overwatering it by giving it water too often is could potentially damage or even kill the tree. Okay, so just keep that in mind. I can't give you a standard. You know, oftentimes from your water purveyor, you'll get when you can water certain things, and that's pretty accurate from from those individuals from that mailer that you're getting and pay attention to that oftentimes i'm switching now to fertilizers when you fertilize citrus trees all you need is a single application of fertilizer once a year that's all that's necessary there's no reason to have to go to fertilizer injectors there's no reason to have to apply it multiple times during the year as a spray but it's important to get that single application in the earliest spring possible, not the winter time, the earliest spring po- possible, and keep that fertilizer application away from the trunk of those trees, about 12 inches, and just put it down according to the amount that they tell you on the fertilizer bag. Then when it's, that fertilizer is applied, remember fertilizers are not on and off switches. What I usually use What I use to gauge whether trees are getting the fertilizer they need is the color of their leaves. And that's what you're focusing on. You're focusing on green leaf color. Green leaf color. I'm talking a little bit about yellowing of of plant leaves in just a second. But what you're really focused on is that single fertilizer application just after flowering or just during flowering or just just prior to flowering, sometime in that that time period. That's what you're focused on. And that soil improvement, if you used a good quality compost to begin with, and you've improved the soil, you've gone ahead and staked it when it was first planted, you're going to be fine. No fertilizer. They do make a citrus fertilizer, citrus fertilizers. Uh, you can buy those if you want to. Typically, what you're going to need, if you're using 
a good quality fertilizer compost in the soil mix, you probably won't need anything. Oh, one thing I forgot to tell you is after that fertilizer is, excuse me, after that soil has been watered in and you've put the drip irrigation or irrigation around the tree and you're irrigating it, then cover that soil with three to four inches of wood chips in the desert soils in particular, because as they rot, they'll contribute to the soil. Wood chips are extremely important for soil health and for fertilizer, for nutrient content of the soil and for the plant health itself. So that decomposing, that layer of wood chips that's in contact with the wet soil from irrigation is going to rot. And as it rots, it's going to feed uh, whatever nutrients are in that those wood chips back to your trees again and that's going to help to make them make them uh, healthier as a long shot so fertilizer applications i typically look at the tree and determine if i'm not getting eight to ten inches of new growth every year in established trees then i go ahead and the and the leaf color is not dark green i'll go ahead and add a fertilizer i'll skip adding a fertilizer that year if i'm getting really succulent growth there's no point and adding a fertilizer if it's growing well to begin with. No reason at all. If it has dark green leaves, no reason at all to fertilize them. Hey, whatever is in the soil is doing its job. Let it go. Let it fertilize. Let it contribute to the overall health of that plant. So fertilizer, a fertilizer application. You can buy citrus fertilizers if you want uh, and add that if you want, but usually wood chips are and compost in that planting hole is enough to carry it for most of the time. Yellowing of, I wanted to talk a little bit about yellowing of the leaves. Remember I said that green leaves are a good response that the tree is healthy, that things are going well. Sometimes we're going to see in citrus yellowing of leaves, and it can come from lots of different reasons. The, the easiest one to get rid of right off the top of the bat, if you're seeing it in the spring and it's kind of a bronzy yellowish look, that's most likely winter cold damage to the leaves. Remember, these are subtropical. And if we had low temperatures uh, during the winter time, they sometimes can cause a bronzing or yellowish look to the leaves that um, are not, it's not inducive to anything that you have to do. You just have to wait for it to correct itself and it will when temperatures start to get warmer. But yellowing of leaves can come from a couple of different sources. One is is a nutrient content or deficiency in that soil. In the desert soils, the usual, the number one reason for yellowing of leaves is, and this is the new growth that's coming out, is is a loss of iron, is, is an, an, an application, a need for iron. Usually, if you've amended that soil with compost, you've put wood chips on the surface, that's not going to be a problem. But if you have a desert soil that's not amended with compost, that is not covered with wood chips, and you're growing citrus in a soil that's not very well improved, you may see some yellowing going on. And it can be from a water drainage problem because you don't have it, you, you don't have the soil amended properly at the time of planting, or it could be for other reasons. But if you don't have the compost, get a layer of compost, put it down about a half an inch of that compost, keep it away from the trunk, and put wood chips on top of it, 
and let it decompose in that soil. And if you can, take a little hoe and mix that compost and that that compost into that soil before you put the wood chips down a little bit as much as possible. It's okay, you can disturb some of the roots on it's near the surface. It's going to help in the long run. But otherwise, uh, cover that soil with wood chips and let it rot, let it decompose and add nutrients to that soil. Sometimes you're going to need an iron application. And I'll talk about iron applications, but use your favorite iron application. That, that Typically, a soil application of iron is best done in the very early spring of the year before new growth or as just as new growth is starting. And then you can catch it later on with a foliar application, an application made to the leaves if you've missed that. But typically, uh, the soil applications of iron your, from your favorite iron fertilizer, it will be enough to uh, to correct the problem. I would say 95% of the time. Yellowing can also occur from plants that are grown in subtropical, semi-tropical, Mediterranean regions and then moved into a hot desert climate and then put into soils that are poor to begin with. You can see some yellowing going on at that point too. But typically, that is something... In the next season, if that soil has been improved, if you've um, managed that soil, if you've got the compost in it, if you've got the wood chips, and you're improving it because it is a subtropical, semi-tropical plant, you have improved that soil, you'll see it start to disappear. So just be patient as it. Remember, nutrient content of the soil is best determined by looking at the color of the leaves and the new growth. And as long as they're dark green, and you're getting plenty of new growth, don't worry about it. Fertilizer applications are not as important with that. Well, that's about it for me right now on Citrus. If you have any questions, uh, contact me. But uh, that should be all. I hear that music. It's time to go. So until we talk again, good luck with selecting Citrus. Bye-bye. Look for me on my blog, Extreme Horticulture of the Desert. That's starting with an X. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter.